Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our Georgia HFMA's podcast series, Healthcare Finance Miked Up. This is our fifth episode of the series, and I'm really pumped about introducing these two individuals. Cal Garrett, an executive at Evidence Care, is a huge supporter of Georgia HFMA and is so engaged with our chapter. We're really lucky to have him interviewing my very own colleague, Lauren Sloan, Assistant Vice President of Population Health at Wellstar Health System. Enjoy today's episode as Kyle and Lauren walk you through population health and what the future looks like around population health. Get ready. This is going to be brilliant. Welcome, Georgia HFMA listeners. Uh, Thank you to everybody that's joining us here on the podcast today. My name is Kyle Garrett, and I am with Evidence Care, a company based in Nashville, Tennessee, actually. Uh, And I have the pleasure today of being joined by Lauren Sloan, Assistant Vice President of Population Health at Wellstar Health System in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, Lauren, thanks so much for joining me today. If you don't mind uh, introducing yourself and and providing a little bit of background, that'd be fantastic. Well, thanks, Kyle. This is such a pleasure and really exciting because I love podcasts and this is my first podcast to get to be a part of. So I just appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Uh, So as you said, I'm an assistant vice president at Wellstar Health System and located in Marietta, Georgia and really across all of Georgia. I've been in healthcare administration for about 14 years, 12 of those in Georgia in both pediatric and adult healthcare systems. Uh, prior to that, I finished my MBA at Guisueta, uh Business School, and before that, um, I was actually a Peace Corps volunteer in Moldova, which is right next to Ukraine, and actually swam across a river and stood in Ukraine, so all very interesting life before healthcare. So I think that just shows I'm very mission-driven, but also I love some math, like many, I think, of the listeners on this podcast. Uh, Those last six years, I've been leading Pop Health at Wellstar. I also, in those last six years, started my own app and built and designed my own app. And sadly, it did not make it in the app world, but it really taught me a lot about technology and the adoption of technology, which is really critical for all of healthcare work, especially within population health. Personally, I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee, multi-generation Tennesseer. So I've been uh, in the the Georgia, Tennessee world in the South for my whole life and multiple generations. So I definitely, from a population standpoint, understand the complexities of not having, not, or making choices not to eat the barbecue and the banana pudding. <laughs> That's how we all show love in the South. Oh yeah, definitely. Barbecue, banana pudding, and, and sweet tea for sure. <laughs> all good stuff. That's awesome. We'll, uh, we'll have to connect uh, another time, Lauren, I would love to hear more about uh, the experiences that you just referenced for sure. Uh, but with today's pop, uh, topic being population health, uh, you know, just as we kind of kick off the conversation, I thought we could start with, you know, just the basics. What What is population health? Population health is a big word. Um, and so I'm going to start really broad and I think we'll get more specific as we go through this podcast. I'll start with the World Health Organization, which actually defined health in 1946, a little history lesson here, which they um, 
define health as a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. So I like to just add population to that. So a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity for a specific population. And that population can be very differently defined on depending on what you're looking at. And then I want to add on, though, maybe a vision of what population health is when we come down to the individual level that then creates our communities. I really think about my grandfather who died at 100 years old and he died in his sleep. And the week before he was walking and laughing with his grandson and he was on no medication when he died. So when we think about population health, we think about a life well lived for sure. Um, without a lot of infirmity or disease and getting to um, have a really happy, meaningful life and not be burdened by um, different issues. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, well, it certainly certainly sounds like a a life well lived for sure from your grandfather's uh, point of view. And I think that's a vision that everybody listening can certainly get behind and relate to, especially given uh, kind of everything that's been going on the last couple of years. Um, but with that being referenced, you know, and the industry continuing to ch- evolve and, and ever changing, uh, why is population health so important to healthcare organizations now? I think the main reason outside of all of us probably that are in healthcare Um, wishing for our family, friends, community, patients, um, this type of reality. But there's also a very important um, concept around the affordability and the sustainable model of healthcare. We, many of us know that the economic structure of healthcare is not sustainable. And the Affordable Care Act was a framework that was created um, to systematically address how we design a sustainable economic model, which is at most, um, you know, what you see in the media isn't exactly what the the model was really designed to um, do, but it was really designed to help transition our economic structure of healthcare from a fee for service to the value based model of care. We know that in 2026, Medicare is planning on or will be insolvent. Um, unless Congress um, takes some specific actions. Um, and so that what that means is our we won't be able to cover the costs of our beneficiaries bill for Medicare as of 2026. Another way to think about this is that the US, we spend about $10,000 per capita on healthcare. And as a comparable country, um, Germany, they spend $5,000 a year for various reasons. But our GDP, we only generate 30% more than they do in revenue. So our costs are 50% more, but we're only generating 30% more in revenue. So that economic reality is not very sustainable. Um, And then when we just look at adding the happiness index, we're actually about the same happiness index as Germans. So we're basically spending more for stuff that's not really making us happier. And so that really has to be addressed. And that's why population health is so important, because if you go back to the vision of my grandfather, it's much less costly and probably you end up happier in that reality. And that is a sustainable model. How do we create a healthier population 
so we can create a sustainable population when it comes to cost. Definitely. Well, yeah, that's a great answer. And uh, thank you so much for that. It's so interesting to hear all the different uh, angles or perspectives that uh, it takes when, you know, looking into and diving into population health. Um, so you talk about, you know, uh, a sustainable population and happier uh, people and, and population. So with those folks and, and trying to create a sustainable and, and healthy population, you know, uh, what are some ways to drive patients into doctor's offices? Um, you know, you mentioned us, uh, you know, maybe in Nashville and, and growing up in, in the South, um, you know, sometimes I know from my perspective, personally, my, my grandparents, uh, my grandfathers specifically were not always the best about making their appointments or going to their checkups. So, you know, how do you get patients in the doors t to their visits to see their doctors? Um, and, you know, how, yeah, I guess expand a little bit on, you know, how you get them in the doors. Yeah, it's a great question. It really depends on the population. I'll go with that. And I'm going to answer that in three different parts. Um, one, the word I would use around this is around the word what folks will call access. And I'm going to break access into three different things that have three different barriers and challenges that need to be addressed to get patients in the door to be have a clinical care team to get them cared for so we end up in a better um, managed population the first is the actual doors so i'll call it um, our facilities our locations but that um is evolving from not just or not just brick and mortar which are still really really important but also making sure we have virtual access where it's necessary if the consumer needs that um, and then thinking about it based on the type of person. So are you young? Are you pretty healthy? Are you commercially insured versus are you an elderly person? Um, are you a lower income person that has limited access to transport? Um, all different kinds of issues that really have to be addressed um, to get people in the door. So the first question you have to ask is, do we actually have the access points for people to get in? And then within that environment, it becomes really efficient that that's an efficient process. So if if I'm a person and I try to get an appointment in my doctor's office and I, you know, I can't get them on the phone, um, I might not even want to go. I, that creates a barrier that's like, I'm not going to call my doctor again because that's so annoying. They're not even answering the phone for me. Well, then, um, or I have to cancel my appointment and the next appointment isn't for seven months. Well, that could have been a really important preventative screening. So the efficiency and the access becomes really important for addressing um, getting in the door. The second is that's really important to talk about is the providers and our services. Um, even if maybe the building, we got to make sure we have a physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, pharmacists provide the services. COVID did a real number on our clinical workforce. And I know for Wellstar and many other providers, we are in a major rebuilding phase. Um, in our world, it's like a post-World War II. I always envision that picture after World War II with the flags and everybody's really excited and they're entering and freeing everybody. And then, of course, you've sort of the camera goes around and you see the rubble and that's really what it's like right now. Um, many of our physicians and, and other clinical leaders or, and team members retired or got out of the industry. So it's really important that we are constantly thinking about 
how we retain and re-engage the, the clinical workforce so we can provide those services. And then on top of that, the financial reality to be able to keep and retain and we have less supply, then it's costing us a lot more, which going back to becoming insolvent and needing to change the cost structure makes it really complicated right now um, to provide that level of access is making sure providers. And the third thing I think I cannot go without talking about when we talk about access is access for our patients from a financial standpoint. Um, every day, if you think about it, we all weigh what we're going to spend our money on. And I'm blessed to be financially secure. So spending $5 on a medicine that might prevent me in 15 years from having a stroke is a no brainer. Yes, give me the $5. For many people, you know, $5 is a lot. And they're like, that's not gonna happen to me for 15 years. So I don't need to buy that medicine. Um, or, you know, I just, I can't even afford that $30 copay, um, or I don't even have insurance. Um, and so I'm just gonna avoid it. And then they end up being really, really sick, which we end up all paying for as well. So making sure that we have financial access um, and we are really making sure everybody has access to that level of um, the service um, and they can afford it is another key piece of this. And I have a story that I think is always really interesting. Um, a Medicaid plan out of Oregon did a study of um, their most costly Medicaid patients age 40 to 50. And they looked back over their entire lives and they found on average the, the, the patients that were most costly had about 15 traumatic events in their life. And that's from you know, um, from divorce, being witness to gun violence, um, abuse. And I always stop here when I give my population health talk and say, you know, think about the one or two and how much therapy you might have needed to, to deal with that. Um, and so if we think that trauma and um, lifestyle have a really direct correlation to cost structure, it's very important as well that we have access for folks that can um, remove some of the non-clinical barriers or have support for that so they don't overutilize the system. Um, so it's access at multiple levels, financial access, the service, actual doors to the places, and then making sure we have the people to deliver those services. Well, thank you. That was an excellent breakdown and, and obviously one that uh, kind of uh, awakens uh, my mind into, you know, the, the different aspects, but also, uh, you know, the different circumstances that I think folks are, are actually in when it comes to receiving the, the proper care that they need. Uh, and, you know, the medication example you gave, I think, is a, a perfect way to, to kind of uh, look at that. I think it's so easy sometimes for us to stay in our own lanes or, or kind of our own perspective. So, uh, that was an excellent breakdown. Thank you so much. Um, so when you talk about, you know, access and providing that type of care and availability to, uh, you know, the population, um, you know, obviously technology and, and you kind of alluded to it earlier is a big piece of that. So, you know, how would you say that technology has evolved population health and, and gotten us to, you know, where we are in population health? Uh, great question. Uh, so I, I think back to when I was, even in 2008, when I was in business school and I have uh, one of my favorite professors, um, 
he who led our analytics in business school, he had a overhead projector he used and we still like used Excel to do all of the modeling and calculations, right? And the data collection and um, data collection was still really in the academic setting um, for all of due purposes. Um, so you really didn't have access to data and our tools were very limited. Um, at that same time, I was in college before that, my mom was an internal medicine doctor and she, everything was paper charts. So I had in one summer, she was like, I really want to have computer based files. And so I would spend all summer. She paid me very minimally and probably not even minimum wage. She paid me very minimally to <laughs> enter in <laughs> to take a patient's chart and translate it to an Excel spreadsheet. And then she would search on her computer to find that when that patient came in. So she created her own little database of uh, <laughs> electronic medical record. So I think back to those stories that I think fast forward to now, and two huge things, right? We have the electronic medical record. You know, at Wellstar, we have we see two million patients a year. So we have, and then we have thirty thousand or twenty five thousand employees entering information um, into that electronic medical record. So if we think about that, that's a huge data repository. Um, really cool. So the data collection is just totally different. So we have all this amazing, really rich data. So it's not just hiding in an academic setting. It's really available across the world in a very compliant way, of course. Let me just put that. But um, so you have this ability now, and now we have machine learning on top of that, right? So you have algorithms that can go in and look. I have a great example of um, a patient that, you know, we, that goes to one of our urgent cares is you know 45 and you know doesn't have a pcp pretty healthy but is severely overweight and goes in and has foot pain well that might tell us we might have a machine learning tool that might actually look at that and say hey flag even though it looks like they aren't costly or high utilizers we might flag that person and say hey care management team social worker you might want a health coach you might want to outreach this guy. He's 350 pounds. He has some foot problems. We wonder if that's, if he might need some coaching because in 15, 20 years, if he doesn't change his behavior, he's going to end up to be a $2 million cardiac patient or even worse, not with us anymore. So that's pretty cool that those two things together allow us to identify patients for intervention and early identification once again to the population health framework because if you think about it if i'm 42 and really unhealthy and i don't change my behaviors i'm going to end up with diabetes i'm going to end up potentially if i don't care, take care of my diabetes i could end up in stage renal disease um, and that just gets more and more and more costly so that's a example, I think. And I, I, I would say that our pop health journey with it comes to technology, though, is we're still really in our infancy. Um, one major piece of that's coming out of Medicare right now and a lot of folks in the industry, especially in the pop health and the payer world and the health system world is um, the buzzword social determinants of health equity. Um, but really what we're talking about there is the collection of non-clinical data. So, cause what we know kind of going back to my trauma example, what we know is there are many non-clinical drivers. As I said that jive cost structure, right? So if I can't see, in a data set somehow that maybe your 
you've had transient homelessness or you don't have good food access, then it's hard for me to, for the algorithm and the machine learning when we're looking at millions of populations to say, oh, this person could totally use a social worker and um, let's connect them to a community resource once again, because that person will eventually become our most costly patient um, as well as an unhappy part of our society because they'll be so sick, right? And we're looking for happier people as well as sustainable costs um, in living a life well lived. So that's how I see technology and it's really exciting. It's the most fun space to be in and I'm totally biased. I mean, I love my RevCycle people too, let me just say. <laughs> in the finance world, and they are my best friends and we partner all the time. The managed care, the CFO, the RevCycle, we are lockstep population health. And I think we're gonna talk about that a little bit later, but it, they, they are very symbiotic, but it's a pretty fun technology data space to be in for sure. Definitely. And as someone who loves data, uh, you know, no matter what the data tells, uh, you know, like you talking about all the data and kind of how we're still in the infancy stage of getting all this data together and having it uh, give us insight and, you know, kind of the direction of where population health could be in five to 10, 15 years. I think that's super exciting to kind of think about the roadmap and what the future has in store with, you know, all this data that's being gathered in those electronic health records um these days so um but you mentioned kind of the the uh working relationships that you have with the, the rev cycle side and uh you know with this being the georgia hfma podcast uh you know definitely want to incorporate you know how would you say that population health directly impacts the revenue cycle uh, specifically well i'm not gonna lie that this i once again spend a lot of time with my managed care finance rev cycle team so, but I did do a little research on this specific question beforehand, just so I would make sure that uh, I'm aligning with what the industry, but I makes all makes sense to me. Um, so I think the big thing, and I think most of us know this, is the industry is shifting from fee-for-service to value-based reimbursement, which means um, instead of just automatic increases to your billing, that could be tied more directly to quality and outcomes. Um, so that's at the physician billing level, that's at the hospital billing level. So just the way we get paid is shifting. Um, that if you, there's, a, there's a great model out there, uh, it's uh, the flow from fee-for-service to value and you know, some of, you know, you know, capitation, some of those words. So from we're paying for a widget to we're paying for a whole population's care at one time and managing to that. That's the future where we're working towards. Um, and that's the most efficient way um, to deliver it. But that's probably the, the number one thing to watch for. I always say we are in 20 to 25 year journeys. <laughs> so we are once again, infancy journey. But if you know that that's where we're going, then at least you can kind of have that in your head. I know for instance, our CFO, Jim Bozinski at Wellstar is brilliant at understanding um, both our current fee-for-service model and where we're going and trying to reconcile that um, along our way, serving on many of our boards and our population health work um, to help guide us. Because it is a very, you have to wear two hats at one time, which sometimes can be really hard from a financial perspective. Um, and, the, and once again, and it keeps increasing. So every year we increase the number of dollars that are tied to some of these population health efforts. So Medicare is shifting. Um, it used to be about 
34%. I think now it's something like 60%. I have all of their payments are starting to get tied to some sort of value-based reimbursement, value-based payment system. So that once again is just something to keep your eye on. Um, and then I would say, um, Thinking about our, I think the other big thing from a RevCycle perspective is thinking about then how this affects our physicians and our team members and from a compensation perspective. So the 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 world of the RVU that is still with us, relative value units, will be shifting um, more to a salary-based model over the years. It's once again, the more efficient way to do things. Um, so I think that can be complex when you're thinking of a rev cycle and a financial perspective and, and then how we support the organization through that shift. Um, and then, but I think at the same time, there's a lot of optimism, but I read a study that half of healthcare providers um, still see it as less than 10% of their contracts. So it's shifting but it's still not the majority. So you, we're living in this very limbo space, um, which can once again be frustrating, I think when you're on the ground and trying to live in both worlds. Um, population health brings financial concerns for hospitals um, because I don't think our traditional rev cycle management have that capability to manage in that new world. Very traditional RVU reimbursement billing traditional. So we have to make sure our systems and our financial reporting can show, because sometimes these investments, what I'll say is in some of our contracts, we're looking at a year return on a health, right? So we're or three or five years. So we might be managing a 12 month cost instead of a monthly cost, right? So our, do we have the reporting that shows that even though we might be at a loss right now, we're gonna eventually get that back in these kind of shared savings agreements. So that's a little bit, um, um, but I think in the end that most executives, I would say, I know our, it's part of our uh, Wellstar strategic plan. I'm sure it's part of all health system strategic plan really believe that this is the future that, um, because in the end it is our core mission, which is to really deliver better health care to the populations we serve. So I, I, I think from a financial model perspective, that this is the future and executives are on board with a strategic imperative to invest in them. Gotcha. Well, uh, that was uh, certainly a lot there uh, in how it impacts the revenue cycle. And thank you so much for your wealth of knowledge and diving into, uh, you know, all of those different aspects. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the, the value-based care piece, and I think that's a, a big piece. And obviously to a, a big uh, key phrase, I'll call it, uh, that, that, you know, you hear out there. Um, so with you having touched on that, you know, what are the similarities and differences of population health and value-based care? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'm going to use a kind of controversial, challenging, in my world, it's not very challenging, but in a lot of people's world, it can be a challenging concept. Um, uh, so, let me use the end of life example. So population health is the how value-based care is how we eventually, um, the payment methodology to get us there. That's how I kind of look at it. Um, so let's envision we have a person that is terminally ill and um, with cancer. And if you gave them another round of chemo, it might prolong, prolong their life for a month, but they're gonna be pretty miserable for that 
month. At some point, we, as a, as a population health and our true north being focused on the quality of life um, and then not just life at any cost, we will have to make a decision and have a framework that says we want that person to have the best. So it might be they only live for two weeks instead of six weeks, but we make their life at the end really comfortable and they can laugh with their kids and be relaxed and not go through a lot of pain. Um, and that is the future. Um, and that's the difference from a, in my opinion, the population health perspective is we want that person to have the best life possible every moment they have it. Um, it is also, um, we're making choices right now that are not affordable always. And so we have to sort of support people to get healthier um, because we, the way we're going to pay for that in the future and what we can pay for if we're going to go from that. Remember, I said that $10,000 to the $5,000 cost <laughs> that Germany or even 10 to seven um, is, is we're going to have to make some really tough choices and really shift the way we think about our health and management more effectively and efficiently. That's a great point. I, I think it's pretty cool how you tied in that story there with kind of your vision that you talked about at the beginning of the conversation, you know, with your grandfather and kind of how his end of life was uh, and kind of the story there. And then, you know, also too, I think, you know, that the importance of decision-making, uh, you know, that was a, a key thing that I think you hit on as well with, you know, the data aspect too. What is the data going to show us there with those decisions that are going to be made and, and kind of the vision there for, the future of population health uh, alongside value-based care. So um, thank you for, for that example. Um, now to the next question, uh, shifting gears a little bit, and I'm sure that this is um, probably a, a question that you get often and is a topic that uh, is, is everywhere right now, given the last two years that we've just endured. Uh, but I think it's really necessary and important to address. Um, but what was the impact that, you know, COVID had on population health? And, and you know, as we went through 2020 and, and 2021, and, um, you know, what, what was the impact there? Uh, mental health, mental health, mental health. So yeah. our patients, our caregivers, our physicians, our clinical teams, our team members, we found out a couple of million ago, we, weeks ago, we hit 1 million people died in the U.S. and Healthcare and our population health teams were at the bedside for so many of those deaths. Um, that is a large trauma and toll to take on um, as a society, as uh, so many people, I probably there's no one that didn't lose someone during the COVID pandemic. Many people had never experienced true trauma in their lives and lost people really suddenly. Our caregivers um, were by bedsides where they were the only person that was supporting people through that process through those you know that really challenging time um and i think honestly from all the stuff we've been talking about from you know as a as an mba person and but a big heart i i get like we are in a complex financial we have to deliver great health and be financially responsible and i do think that covid demonstrate that our financial system that we've created is not working, which means we have to change this system. We, um, the recovery from baseline is going to be really challenging for many of our healthcare systems. 
And we, um, as I talked about trauma before, think about now, like now, and as I said, remember trauma corresponds to cost. So now we are going to be caring for people who've just experienced a whole society, healthcare givers, a significant traumatic event. So that cost bubble is probably coming. So we have to be preparing from a population health perspective to really um, address that and think through it. Um, and once again, and continue on this journey, which I do believe uh, our policymakers, our executives, our clinical teams are all believing it's even more important now than ever to have a population health strategy and imperative because if we don't change the current system we'll be again um, in a system if we have another crisis i just don't know if our healthcare system would be able to sustain it in our current um our current way we're doing business so that's what i'll say about yeah definitely and obviously you hit on a, a big thing with you know the mental ath the mental health aspect you know kind of the, the, the image that you portrayed earlier of us being on kind of the, the other side now of a, a, another world war. Um, you know, I think it's important to emphasize uh, the need uh, to address, you know, the, to address and, and uh, emphasize the importance of going and getting that, that help if, if you need it, just with everything that we've been through as a society and population in the last two years. Um, you know, I, I know that we've all seen the, the effects, um, but, you know, as, as we go through challenging times and, and have those, uh, I think with those challenges uh, and as we move forward, uh, there can be hurdles that, that cause uh, impact or change uh, for the better. Um, not that anything that we just went through was, was good by any means over the last two years, but uh, with those types of challenges and hurdles, uh, you know, how would you say that those have impacted population health from a growth perspective uh, for maybe maybe the better? So I think a couple of things, I, I, what I, positives I've seen, and I'm a pretty optimistic person, so I definitely like to look at the, 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 the um, cloud lining, the silver lining. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so the, the, you know, I do think that change sometimes does highlight even more the systemic issues we have. So there's some good stuff there around Unfortunately, sometimes you have to go through the really bad to say, wow, this is what really matters and here's what we really need to do. So I do see a lot of momentum um, built to really accelerate some of the change that's needed in our healthcare system. Um, so I think that's great and addressing the issues that I talked about earlier, the equitable access to care. I think COVID highlighted that we have significant issues around access and equitable access to care that have to be addressed. And I see really positive um, things happening around that too. Um, the the other thing I'll say is I think we've seen how important our medical and public health workers overall are for this country. So the re-investing um, and the re-supporting those disciplines, because when it comes down to it, they are our um, essential workers, right? So all of us that are, you know, administrators and working in the background, I mean, we are essential, but, uh, you know, when it comes down to it, we all want those people standing next to us if, for these kinds of crises. So um, I I believe that that those that work has been elevated, which it, it always should, and we should remember the importance of it. The other thing I'll say is I, I see really individuals 
focusing on um, family, um, prioritizing what matters to them. And it's funny in our world, so on a day-to-day basis, the people I work with are um, nurse care managers, social workers, pharmacists, health coaches, physicians, like working day in with patients that have really complex clinical and non-clinical issues and trying to change behavior um, with people that have had really hard lives, to be frank, or have really hard circumstances. I'll tell you the most important thing that we get trained on is switching from asking what's the matter to what matters, because there's nothing more important than what matters to someone than to change their behavior. Um, So I say what mattered to my grandfather was going on a walk, um, laughing with his grandson up until 100 years old. So I can envision if you asked him when he was 45, what matters, he'd say, that's where I want to be. And, you know, we need to do more of that. And I think people are really open and starting to realize what matters to them, which helps us (laughs) and our population health to help people change and develop good habits and really drive so that we're all healthier in the end and we don't um, end up in a system similar to what we are very costly um, with a lot of people that are living with um, a lot of really challenging conditions. So I think that is, so I really think more people are going to be ready to engage in a journey towards better health. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, I love uh, the the optimistic and, and the optimistic approach and vision there of, you know, getting back to what matters. And, you know, you hear people talk about all the time, uh, you know, different conferences and things about, you know, culture and taking care of one another now. And, you know, also like the personal level relationships that we see now too, you know, everybody jokes around about the teams calls and the zoom calls and stuff, but honestly, a lot of people know their teams better than they ever have because they have their dogs that jump into the video screen or, they hear someone yelling at their eight-year-old kid that they didn't know they had before, you know, and things like that too. So the the aspect of getting back to what matters and kind of the blocking and tackling of culture and population, I think, is uh, is pretty cool. So um, thank you so much for for all the vision, insight, you know, depth of knowledge that you've shared today, Lauren. I think it's been super insightful for myself and also to I think everybody that tunes in and listens to this podcast. You can tell. Um, you know, that you're a very mission driven individual. And I I think that kind of shines through in in a lot of your answers here. So thank you so much uh, for your time. Um, You know, jumping over to, you know, another topic uh, with it being April 1st that we're uh, recording this today, you know, the final four is this weekend. So uh, who do you have in the final four? I got to know who you're picking, uh, you know, to win it all. Always a, a challenging question this time of year. <laughs> Most hard question. Hold on, because it's so hard. I have to really think about it. Well, I am, as you can tell from our this conversation, I am obviously always a fan of the underdog. So I'm going to say UNC. Nice. Okay. They got a lot of momentum right now. So <laughs> Thank you so much, Lauren. Oh, really Kyle, what a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. This has been really fun. Thanks for uh, being my partner in my first podcast. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's been awesome. Thank you, Lauren. It's been really, really fun.